Welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we are discussing the ever-important issue of education, both the big topic in the political sphere of free college, is free college really free, and also a new fad in K-12 education called restorative justice, which is the new way schools are approaching disciplining the children that are acting up in school. So our guest today is going to talk about both, and she's going to outline, first of all, what she thinks are the negative consequences of this issue of restorative justice. Inez Stepman is here with us. She is a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum. She has worked in education policy for seven years and prior to joining IWF was the Director of Education and Workforce Development at the American Legislative Exchange Council. She's also a senior contributor to The Federalist where she writes on subjects ranging from feminism to fashion and is the Thursday editor of Bright, which is a women's daily newsletter. I do get that every day or Monday through Friday, so you should sign up for it. And Inez, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. And I'm so excited about this new uh, rebooted podcast. I know it's been a lot of fun doing it. And one of the things that I love about it is I tend to learn a lot, especially having individuals like you who are deep into certain policy issues. Of course, we're going to delve into the issue of education and we're going to end talking about free college because that's something that is being discussed quite a bit by the Democratic candidates. It's being discussed on Twitter quite a bit. You were involved in that conversation. We'll end with that. But I want to start today on an area of education that I was not as familiar with, and that is the the new way of disciplining children in schools, if that's the way, right way to talk about it or a way to get them to talk. And it's this idea of restorative justice. And I found it fascinating and thought we would just start off by letting people know that you have a policy piece on, on this issue. It's called The Unintended Consequences of Restorative Justice. And it's on the Independent Women's Forum website so people can learn more. But let's just jump into it. Explain to us what restorative justice is and why is this being used right now in schools? Absolutely. So you're not the only one um, who has never heard of this, this discipline revolution that's been going on mostly behind closed doors, which is part of the reason I think so few parents um, and general members of the public actually have heard much about it. Uh, but it, it, it's a technique that's borrowed from the real criminal justice context. So um, this is something uh, that is sometimes in use in some prisons. Um, but it is moving away from traditional suspension, expulsion, referral to law enforcement for the most serious infractions that constitute crimes on campus, and moving more to a root causes sort of sit down um, method where oftentimes rule breakers or even uh, kids who have committed crimes are sitting down sometimes directly with their victims or with their teachers and talking about why it happened. Um, and and it, sounds, it sounds nice, and it was implemented with the best of intentions, right? Um, who doesn't want to have fewer kids being referred into the criminal justice system? Who doesn't want to, to slow down that so-called school-to-prison pipeline? Um, and, and furthermore, it was implemented with, about, um, in response to worries that traditional discipline like suspensions, like expulsions, like referring people to law enforcement was somehow um, unfair because there were disparities among racial groups as to how many, for example, you know, black boys were being suspended versus uh, Asian girls, right? And, and so it, this grew out of some really good intentions, but, but as I'm sure we both know, sometimes good intentions uh, 
paves the way for very, very negative consequences. And unfortunately, that's largely what's happened with this new technique, restorative justice. And I was looking at some of the polling on this, and it says that when it when it comes to parents who are worried about their child's safety in schools, it's one in three parents are really concerned about whether or not their child is safe. Of course, I think this stems from, not surprisingly, school shootings. We can think of the Parkland shooting, but even school shootings before then, it's been the anniversary of the Columbine shooting. Um, So I understand that the concern that parents have, what I found very fascinating about the policy piece that you wrote is often when children are in this situation where they're trying to work out with the other person that they have an issue with through conversation, often the parents don't even know about that. Yeah, um, it's it's one of the that's one of the reasons people don't know much about this is even um, oftentimes parents discover this discipline problem only when their children run into it in the form of consequences on campus. And there are so many stories I've talked to so many families actually over the last couple of years who have had really harrowing experiences trying to find out what has happened to their kids on campus. Um, and oftentimes, even that basic information, if, for example, if their kids were assaulted or beat up on campus, is no longer available to them. So they will go to the administration, and the administration will basically stonewall them and not give them a lot of uh, information about even what happened to their kid, and definitely no information about what consequences were applied for that action. And sometimes no information about what consequences or what um, safety measures will be in place going forward in order to make sure that their child is actually safe at school. You know, that that statistic you cited, you know, one in three parents, a third of parents feel that their child is unsafe in school. I mean, we, we talk so much about academic results in our public schools being lackluster or not where they should be, which is right. I mean, we should obviously correct to be concerned about that. But in some ways, safety is an even more basic concern. I mean, moms and dads have an absolute right to feel uh, that when they send their kids off to school in the morning, that their kids are going to a place that is safe. And unfortunately, these well-intended reforms were implemented in a way that uh, went around any kind of parent input um, or parent consent. And they've had um, unfortunate consequences to the extent that we can even find any data on it because schools are increasingly not gathering that data. And as with this, is this something where it's you see it mostly in K-12 education? Are we seeing this also in higher education as well? And is this something that's been more of a federal push versus a local push? So this is more of a K-12 uh, discipline issue, the, the restorative justice policies. But you're absolutely right to worry about where the impetus for these policies actually came from. Um, And it did come from the feds to a large degree. So there were a few districts that were out in front of this policy. Broward County, which houses Parkland, was actually one of them. Uh, So Broward County implemented a RJ, a restorative justice style discipline policy, a few years back. And and, um, we saw them touting their decreases in suspensions, decreases in expulsions, um, decreases in referring kids to law enforcement, even for criminal activity. And unfortunately, you know, we talked about um, just a few minutes ago about some of the consequences for fights and bullying. But unfortunately, some of the consequences um, of creating this kind of campus climate where even serious infractions go unpunished um, sometimes can actually be tragic. So in the case of Broward County and Parkland, Um, The shooter that then went on to murder 17 people, uh, he had committed multiple 
uh, crimes and even potential felonies on campus starting from when he was in middle school. So he should have been referred to law enforcement. He was clearly a troubled kid. He had, um, you know, made real threats. Um, He had committed crimes on campus. He had brought weapons to school. And yet because of this program of trying to push down the numbers of, quote unquote, bad numbers, right, numbers of suspensions, numbers of expulsions, and especially numbers of kids who actually end up in the criminal justice system uh, or in the juvenile justice system, so because the, the, the uh, pressure was really to push down those numbers, nothing was actually reported or, or nothing permanent made it onto this kid's record that then would prevent him from going out and buying a firearm. Um, so sometimes these consequences really can be tragic. So, so Broward County was way out ahead um, of everybody else. And unfortunately, the Obama administration, um, his education secretary, looked at at Broward and said, isn't this great? Suspensions are going down. Expulsions are going down. Um, This is a wonderful policy. We need everybody to adopt this policy. So they issued what's called a dear colleague letter, which is a way of getting around the formal rulemaking process for the federal government. And they, they announced to all the school districts in America that if you had disparities, racial disparities in your suspension or expulsion rates, um, that the federal government was going to launch investigations, civil rights investigations, into your district. And they said, hey, you know how you can avoid or close these very expensive investigations? You can adopt RJ policies. You can adopt restorative justice instead of your traditional discipline policy, and the federal government will get off your back. This did not go through, for the most part, did not go through school boards, did not go through elected representatives, did not go through the normal political process. And of course, because we don't have widespread school choice, especially for middle-class families, um, there are a lot of families who had no way to impact this policy on the school board level and then had no way to escape from the, the impact of these policies when their kids started reporting that they feel, felt unsafe um, on campus. They had no way to take their kids out, financially feasible way to take their kids out of those schools that they, they were increasingly hearing were unsafe for them. So this was a federal policy that was pushed on districts across America, largely without parents even knowing um, what was going on until their kids, unfortunately, ran into the consequences of it. And you were mentioning the number aspect. I'm sure it does look successful when you look at it from a data perspective, because you say all these things that we would consider bad children acting out when that's going down, detention, suspensions, um, juvenile criminal justice issues. Of course, on paper that it, it looks good, but I'm glad you brought up the angle of how the, the children feel. I, I was even trying to put myself in the mind of a child. If I was being bullied in school and then I was made to sit across from the p- person bullying me, us talking it through probably makes things worse. <laughs> um, there, I think that there are some instances where, of course, trying to talk things through is better than just issuing judgment. But I'm trying to put myself in the mind of how cruel kids can be sometimes to each other. And I'm sure that this can actually perpetuate more bullying or, or um, whatever the problem may be may actually intensify it. Yeah. So, you know, this, the problem with this policy is not that, um, you know, sitting kids down and talking things through is never a, a, a good idea. In fact, in many cases, it is a good idea. Um, it helps kids to learn how to deal with, with issues with each other and in life. Um, so it is not the, the problem with these policies is they were pushed down, um, top down in a totally bureaucratic way that circumvented the judgment of people who are actually, you know, interacting with these kids. Right. 
um, instead of trusting teachers and administrators uh, to be able to, to look at um, incidents in school and, and determine, okay, this kid is, is a good kid, but he's acting out for X reason. Maybe we need to sit down these two kids together so they can talk it out um, versus this kid really, you know, is a troubled kid. He uh, may potentially end up, you know, doing something much worse if we allow this behavior to continue. That is a judgment call. And that cannot come from people in Washington who have never actually observed the kids in question um, and, and seen what their behavior is. So the problem with this policy is that it totally circumvents the judgment of parents. It circumvents the judgment of teachers. It circumvents the judgment of principals. It circumvents the judgment of everybody who actually uh, has any contact with these kids and actually, you know, knows how to distinguish a serious incident that requires serious consequences from a less serious incident that can be solved with, with a talk through or, or um, you know, with counseling or with, with any of these other restorative justice type techniques. And final question before we move on to the free college element. One of the things we haven't discussed yet is how the topic of gun control is the one that is often used when there is ever a horrific tragedy at, at schools um, or any type of shooting that takes place. When I'm listening to you talk about this idea of restorative justice and how even the person who um, was the perpetrator and shot 17 people at Parkland and he did have a criminal a criminal history, things that, he sh that the um, justice system should have known about, why aren't these things being talked as much about versus gun control? Why is it always going to the knee-jerk issue of guns are the problem versus the person who's holding the gun? Yeah, and it's it's one of those issues where um, not only are we plunging ourselves back into a debate that we've had many, many times over, right? Uh, we have a Second Amendment right in this country. People have the right to own guns, and law-abiding gun owners are the only people who can stop bad guys with guns. Uh, but, but this cycles right back into the left-right debate about gun control, rather than looking at why we have an increasing violence problem in our schools. And, and restorative justice is not, and I don't want to suggest, is the only um, catalyst here. I mean, there are deeper issues about, um, you know, especially uh, fatherless kids, I mean, fatherless boys in particular. That's, that's something I think that we could be talking about in the wake of some of these shootings, um, talking about mental health issues. But yes, in this case, in particular, in Parkland, um, there was a huge story to be told about these programs and how they allow this kid to slip through the cracks, um, even though he did increasingly dangerous things for year after year. There was a story to be told. There was a really important conversation to be had. And unfortunately, you know, mainstream media, the CNN, they were holding the town halls, right, um, with Sheriff Scott Israel, who's now out um, and fired, rightfully so. But they were holding the town halls about gun control. And it took uh, some really great folks like Max Eden over at the, the Manhattan Institute has done phenomenal work on this issue as a policy matter. He's done a ton of research on it. And then, unfortunately, one of the fathers, I mean, unfortunately, because of the circumstances, Andrew Pollock, whose daughter Meadow died that day, he's had to actually take over and, and publicize some of the, the incredible um, facts on the ground about this policy and the consequences that it's had, uh, but because our national media wasn't doing their job. Our national media wasn't actually looking into how we might prevent the next Parkland. They only wanted to talk about gun control because that suited uh, their narrative better. And unfortunately, not only is that a debate that we've had over and over and over again, and obviously I have strong feelings about it. I'm a conservative. I believe in the Second Amendment right to own guns. 
Um, so not only do I disagree with their perspective, but it also means we aren't talking about some of these other things where we might actually be able to find common ground on and actually make some changes in policy so that we can keep our kids safer in the future. Yeah. And I think in addition to keeping kids safer, always also less worried by parents. I mean, if you think about how many parents are worried, that's not a thing that you want to have to think about when you send your child off to school. And then once you get out of the K-12 system, then you have the worry about how do I afford college? And this brings up our other topic, which is something that we're hearing a lot about, which from Democratic candidates mostly, but um, those who who lean left, who are self-identified as liberal, think that the answer to some of our education woes when it comes to how much college costs means we should just make it free. That's that's the easy answer. Uh, of course, that sounds great, but that's not the reality. You've been tweeting about this a lot. What is your perspective and how much traction do you think the free college narrative is getting? I think it's getting a lot of traction because millennials, my generation, your generation, we are the most indebted generation in history. Um, and, and we're largely the, the most indebted generation because uh, and this is something I think conservatives often don't don't um, you know want to confront or talk about or realize how times have changed since you know sort of older folks or the boomers went to college, for example. Um, it, it, we did what people told us to do. We did what our parents told us to do. The culture told us to do writ large. We said the route to success runs through a four-year university, and for decade after decade, tuition prices at universities have skyrocketed well above inflation. So it's really legitimately very, very difficult these days to, quote, work your way through college, right? Because you're talking about tuition rates of 40, 50, 60,000 even in some cases, plus living expenses. I mean, that's way more than the vast majority um, of 18-year-olds could potentially earn, right? Minimum Um, wage isn't going to cut it. Minimum wage definitely won't cut it. Yeah, yeah. You know, your your summer job is not going to cut it to to work your way through college anymore. And and so I think the pressures, we now have $1.5 trillion in outstanding student loan debt. That's all backed by the taxpayer. If that's not paid back, the taxpayer is on the hook for that $1.5 trillion, which is the next looming financial crisis, I think. So, um, you know, this system is not good, has not been good to our generation. It has left us heavily in debt. And I think that's why, quote, unquote, free college sounds so good. And debt forgiveness, like Elizabeth Warren has proposed, sounds so good to so many in our generation. But the reality is, that it's just another giveaway to the universities that are the only ones making out well here. You know, we're indebted. We have to deal with the student loan debt. The taxpayer ultimately has to pick up the dance card uh, for our student loan debt in the event that we're unable to pay it off, as uh, about half of student loans are not in repayment right now, as in people are not making their payments. So that's a huge percentage. Um, so we're all, uh, pardon my French, but we're all screwed. The only people who are not screwed are the universities who are making money on this hand over fist. Um, and, and it's always funny to me that they, you know, I think we all get calls. Uh, those of us who, who went to a university always get the calls from um, the university asking for money hat in hand. Oh, like, please donate. <laughs> um, yeah, I gave you enough of my money. I'm paying it off now. Um But I I think we're really at a crossroads where we as a society have to reconsider whether this enormous both private and public investment with taxpayer taxpayer dollars in our higher education system was really worth it. Or if we want to look at alternative routes to to success, we want to look at, 
you know, trade schools. We want to look at apprenticeships. Um, and, and we want to look at what kids are actually learning in university and whether what they're getting at the end of those four or six years is really worth the enormous, enormous price tag, both to them personally and to the taxpayer. And with this whole motto of, of pre-college, I would say the heart of it is a good thing. We want call, people who want to get an education to be able to afford it, to be able to get it. I think it comes from a really good place. But even as you look in the, at the data, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, who this will eventually help or is going to be more middle class and upper class um, young people who could have afforded it on their own or could have taken on a loan, this actually isn't going to be helping as high of a percentage as low-income individuals. A, a, am I correct on that? You're absolutely correct. This is largely a upper middle class problem. Um, student loan debt is an, an upper middle class problem, not entirely, but but much more than I think the average person thinks about. Because it's, you know it's it's sort of uh, intuitive. You would say, of course, um, if you were well, have fewer student loans, maybe mom and dad picked up a large part of of the tuition check. But the reality is that the people who hold that debt, the top um, quartile, so the top 25 percent of income earners. Um, hold half of the debt, um, whereas the, the bottom quartile holds only 10% of it. And for every $1 that is given out in student loan forgiveness under some of these plans to lower income families, $5 is going to the richest families. So this is really a regressive program. It's a program that the proposal is upside down. We are literally taking from people, middle class Americans or even lower, lower class Americans who are making less money and giving to the sons and daughters of the elite. Uh, because the average American uh, does not have a four-year college degree. Two-thirds of Americans do not have uh, a four-year degree. And so you're asking Folks who are making, you know, say the median household income these days in America, $60,000 a year to pay for the gender studies degree uh, of somebody who went to Harvard. It's a very upside down proposal that actually really doesn't, um, it, it's really unjust in a certain way, not to mention that it's unjust to people who works really, really hard to try to pay off some of that debt and to be, you know, super responsible and pay down their debt as quickly as they possibly can. Um, those folks are, are looking at this and saying, you know, why did I bother doing that? So final question on this. How then do we help those who are making minimum wage, don't have family help, are afraid to take on too high of student loan debt? So the individuals that many on the left say that free college is there to help, what is what is the solution to helping them then? So I agree with you, it's not free college, but, but what can we do? Sure. So I think number one is we should all, I mean, no matter what our financial circumstances going into it, we should all be reconsidering whether college is the correct choice or whether it's just been sold to us as the only route to success, right? So that's, you know, regardless of your income, um, you should be thinking about whether or not investing sometimes six figures, right, uh, of money and then four years at minimum, four years of your life uh, into this pathway actually is going to yield what you hope it will in terms of your career after university. So I think we should all, that's something that we, we all need to, to really start reconsidering. And I think that's going to be a, a cultural shift that's going to happen in the next few years. It is already happening. Um, so that's, that's number one. There are a lot of routes to success and four-year universities are only one of them. And then second of all, they're, they're, they're one of the reasons that um, the biggest student loan debt holders are actually higher income folks is that there are a lot of scholarships already available, especially through universities 
for lower income individuals who get into those universities. Um, so there, there are some scholarships already out there. There's, there's quite a bit. Um, and then third, and I think most importantly, we are creating or perpetuating the problem of really, really high college tuition costs by continuing to underwrite all of these loans, right? So the way this works is, um, you know, every year the federal government takes stock of what the average tuition prices are in universities, and then they, they peg the possible loan amounts that they back to that amount, right? So let's say 10 years ago, Harvard cost $35,000, and the federal government said, okay, great, you can borrow $35,000, right? Um, then Harvard was like, all right, well, if everybody has access to $35,000 through these federal loans, then let's charge 40 because everyone can come up with an additional $5,000, whether that's from family or it's from private loans or from some other source. Um, everybody can come up with an additional few thousand dollars. So let's just bump those tuition prices and we'll get more money. Then the federal government comes in and says, oh, great, Harvard costs 40. Okay, everyone can borrow 40 now. And we go through the same cycle. And that's one of the primary reasons that we've seen costs at college skyrocket well, well, well above inflation, right? It's one of those things that is not just increasing, um, you know, in the same way that everything else is, is getting more expensive in, in dollar terms. Um, it's, it's gotten way more expensive, way faster, because the federal government continues to underwrite these loans. And so what's actually happening is for kids who have to take out these loans, we have to take out larger and larger amounts of money. Um, and that hurts people who don't have families who can, who can make that cost, right? That hurts the middle class. It hurts people uh, who come from lower income backgrounds who are not, you know, they might have been able to manage a debt load if college still cost $20,000 a year. Instead, it costs $50,000 a year because we have all these well-intentioned programs to quote-unquote help. So it's actually really driving up the cost. And the first thing we have to do is just stop digging. we got to freeze the amount of money that is going into feeding this beast. And at the same time, what you see is that often college administrators get um, higher pay. And also there are a lot of cool things that are built on college campuses these days because they have so much money. So you see it, <laughs> yes, it pour back into the campus as well. Um, well, thank you so much for your work on the issues of education. One of the things that I think is great about this topic is topic is it touches everyone. Um, we've all gone through the education system or have children that are. And so thank you for all the work that you're doing. You can follow her on Twitter, Inez. And Inez Felcher, am I saying that last name correct? And I'll spell it for people so they can find you on Twitter. Yes, that's right. Um, Inez, I-N-E-Z. And you can also search for me by Inez Stepman. That's my, my married name, which is way easier to spell <laughs> than my, my maiden name. I think I'm saving literally, you know, days of time not having to spell my, my name out on uh, phones and so forth, uh, interacting with various, you know, the cable company or whatever. I think I'm saving years off my life. So you can also just search for Inez Stepman. I will come up. Perfect. And um, so thank you so much for being here. And thank you, all of us, for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. And we'd love it if you'd share this episode. Let your friends know that they can find more She Thinks episodes. So from all of us here at the Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.